Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Benjamin Friedman. He is the William Joseph Mayer Professor of Political Economy and formerly Chairman of the Department of Economics at Harvard University. And today we're going to talk about his latest book, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. So Dr. Friedman, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be with you. Okay, great. So, I mean, it's interesting because in the book, uh, I wouldn't say perhaps that you present a complete history of economics, but you at least present a good part of it. So my first question would be, when would you say economics as a discipline started really? What we think of as modern Western economics, I believe, started in the 18th century. Now, as I'm very clear in the book, people have been thinking about economic issues uh, since long before that. People were thinking about economic issues 2,000 years ago. Uh, so to claim that nobody had had any interest in these topics uh, before the 18th century would be absurd. But I think the recognizable outlines of what we do today as modern Western economics took shape in the in the 18th century. And although Adam Smith had precursors, uh, and in the book I talk about many of those, both in France and England and elsewhere, uh, I give a lot of the credit to Adam Smith and his contemporaries, especially David Hume, for giving us modern Western economics as we know it. And as I'm replying to you, I realize that I keep repeating the phrase modern Western, because that's important in answering your question. Uh, to repeat what I said before, uh, humans have been thinking about issues of what we would uh, regard as economic questions for a very, very long time. But most of those thoughts are not what have shaped what we do today. And I think what we do today really does date to the era of Smith and Hume and their contemporaries. Mm -hmm. But since in the book you're basically talking about the relationship between religion and capitalism or economics, is it that before Christianity we know if any other religion influenced economic thinking? Yes, just to take the obvious example for Western thought, uh, before uh, Christianity came on the scene, uh, there was the Hebrew Bible. And there's a lot in the Hebrew Bible about economic behavior and about economic relations uh, between individuals and uh, among groups of individuals. To repeat what I said before, we don't want to think that this is uh, the underpinnings of modern Western economics as we had it. But there is certainly a lot in the Hebrew Bible about, uh, about questions that are identifiably economics. It's about um, ways of conducting market relationships. It's about uh, relationships between employers and the workers who uh, are in their employ. Uh, there are things about money. And all of this long predates the beginnings of Christianity. So the answer to your question is yes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, but is it that religion influences 
how economists think about economics or is it that it influences how society is structured, including how economics is done in a particular society? Well, the second part of what you said is, of course, true. And I think this has long been recognized, uh, to repeat what I said a minute ago, even if you go back to the Hebrew Bible, so we're now back, uh, what, 2,500 years ago, there's an enormous amount about the way the religious thinking of the time uh, structured market relationships, who does what. Uh, there's a whole uh, set of laws in the Hebrew Bible governing things like, suppose I borrow your uh, ox and the ox is injured. Well, what kind of reparations am I supposed to pay to you? Uh, there are uh, things about treatment of the poor, statements in the Hebrew Bible that if you have a vineyard, for example, you're not allowed to um, reap the, or if you have a wheat field, you're not allowed to reap the edges and the corners of the field. You have to leave that for the uh, the poor. Or if you've harvested your grapes and you're taking your grapes to market and some grapes fall off of the wagon, you're not allowed to pick up the grapes. You have to leave those for the poor. Uh, and again, about treatment of your workers. So all of this is, of course, about economics uh, but it's not about economic thinking in the sense of modern Western economic uh, thinking. I don't believe the authors of the Hebrew Bible thought in terms of economic thinking. They were thinking about econ economic issues, but they didn't they see themselves thinking about thinking about economics, if I can draw that distinction. But then your book is focused mostly on our religion influenced economic thinking, correct? Uh, the book uh, seeks to explain where our modern Western economics comes from. So look, I'm an economist, and I came at this from the direction of the economics, not the religion. I'm not a religion scholar. So I came at it from asking the question of where did our modern Western economics come from? and why did it emerge when it did and where it did. And that led me to looking at a variety of influences, most of which are perfectly well known, but the one that struck me as having been overlooked, and that's why I chose to write the book on it, is the influence of religious thinking on our modern Western economics. And it so happened that People like Adam Smith and David Hume, who gave us modern Western economics, very much lived in the English-speaking Protestant world, and therefore the religious influences on their thinking were what was happening in the English-speaking Protestant world. Now, if I had been a religious scholar, and I had come at it from the other direction, I would have said, well, how about Roman Catholic thinking? Uh, I'm aware that in uh, Thomist uh, thinking uh, associated with, with Aquinas and the scholastics, for example, there's a lot of thought about uh, the way in which moral principles uh, should affect economic relations. Uh, I didn't see that that had much to do with the origins of modern Western economics, 
because that's not the world Adam Smith and David Hume lived in. They lived not in the 12th century, but the 18th century. They lived not in Spain and Italy. Uh, they lived in uh, Scotland. And I suppose they must have known uh, some uh, Roman Catholics, but uh, I don't think uh, Roman Catholics played a major role at that time in the intellectual life of either England uh, or Scotland. And to, we were talking just a moment ago about uh, Jewish uh, thinking. Uh, if I had been approaching this from the other direction, from asking, uh, let's talk about the various ways in which religious thinking has influenced economics and economic thinking, I might have included a fair amount on the Hebrew Bible. I could have done that. But uh, it's not obvious that, uh, in fact, I've actually looked, it's not clear that Adam Smith ever met a Jew. He probably did, but there's no evidence that he did. Uh, we do know that, Adam, that, that David Hume did, incidentally. When David Hume uh, lived in Paris, he did meet a Jew, a Sephardic Jew named Isaac de Pinto uh, from the family, presumably of Portuguese origin. Uh, and Smith and de Pinto had a lively correspondence on markets which had been published. But it would be uh, an enormous stretch to say that Isaac de Pinto via David Hume had any significant influence on economic, modern economic, Western economics. So again, the key thing is that I'm approaching it from the direction of asking where our modern Western economics came from and why it emerged, where it did, when it did. And that's what led me to focus on the uh, Protestant uh, thinking, and in particular, the Protestant thinking of the English-speaking world, and then in particular, the what was going on in that uh, Protestant thinking in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So do you think that, that one of the reasons why capitalism first arose in England was because of this Protestant influence? Well, here we have to be very careful because there's a difference between talking about capitalism as a form of economic organization and talking about modern Western economics as a body of intellectual thought. Uh, I don't think it's fair to say that capitalism as a form of economic organization emerged first in England. Uh, if anything, I would point, I suppose, to northern Italy long before with some of these great banking houses uh, in northern Italy and then up through Germany in the uh, Middle Ages. Uh, the Fuggers, for example, were the leading bankers. And then uh, on into uh, the Netherlands was very important in the 17th century. Dutch capitalism uh, had its uh, golden age, as they call it. So I don't want to claim that capitalism as an economic form of organization and behavior began in either England or Scotland. It didn't. What I think did importantly emerge out of Scotland in the 18th century was the body of thinking about capitalism that we regard as modern Western economics. Mm -hmm. And was Adam Smith religious himself? No, and that's an important uh, uh, 
issue that I spend quite a bit of time on in the book. There's no evidence that Adam Smith had any particular religious uh, commitment uh, as a matter of taking up his professorship at the University of Glasgow. He did have to appear at the Presbyterian consistory in Glasgow and uh, take an oath uh, to the um, Westminster Confession, which was the standard confession, uh, religious confession then used by the Church of Scotland. Uh, but there's no evidence that he took this uh, uh, particularly seriously. And uh, we do know that when he took the oath, he asked to be excused from the requirement to start each lecture with a prayer. Uh, his request was denied. And so he started each lecture with a very short prayer. <laughs> so there's, there's no evidence that he was a religious man. And for David Hume, uh, quite the contrary. David Hume was an outspoken opponent of any kind of organized religion. He was probably an atheist. If he wasn't an atheist, he was certainly an agnostic. And so my story is absolutely not that these were religiously committed individuals self-consciously bringing their religious beliefs to bear on their professional work. And then the challenge to me in the book is to explain, well, if that wasn't the case, what did account for the influence of religious thinking on their economic thinking. And the uh, answer that I give, and I cite lots of people starting with Einstein, uh, Einstein's famous phrase is that uh, scientific thinking is a, an outgrowth of pre-scientific thinking. Einstein had the concept of what translates into English as a worldview or a picture of the world. In Einstein's German, it was the built de Welt. Uh, and Einstein's view, idea was that every uh, body, and not just physical scientists, but creative thinkers of all kind, Einstein pointed to philosophers, to painters, to poets, uh, everybody has in his or her mind a view of the world, a, a built de Welt, and that leads to thought. And uh, my predecessor at Harvard, Joseph Schumpeter, had the same view. Uh, Schumpeter, uh, in his history of economic analysis, had this concept of pre-analytic vision. And it was sufficiently important that when Schumpeter wrote about it, he put a capital V on the word vision. So pre-analytic vision with a capital letter. And his idea was that any time an economist sits down to do his or her analysis, uh, that person already has in mind what he called a vision of the world, a pre-analytic vision. And so the argument I make in the book is that because they lived in a world in which religion was more central and more pervasive and more multidimensional uh, than anything we know in today's Western society, Smith and Hume and their contemporaries were influenced by these new and highly contended currents of thought in the religious thinking of the English-speaking Protestant world, even though, to get back to your direct question, they were not religious individuals in any way. Mm -hmm. 
But, I mean, uh, were they influenced by other thinkers who were themselves religious? Well, could be, uh, could well be. Uh, as I explained in the book, uh, there were a number of pre, uh, precursors <clears throat> to Smith's thinking. He did not make this up out of a whole cloth. Uh, there were a number of people in England and also a number of people in uh, France um, France is important in this regard because Smith lived in France uh, for two and a half years when he was first starting uh, the project and also because some of these French thinkers had had their work translated into English and Smith was uh, aware of it. And so one would have to go through uh, point by point and some of these uh, earlier thinkers were religious uh, individuals, some were not. So, for example, in England, uh, I would argue that the most important of the pre-Smithian thinkers was Bernard Mandeville, who was absolutely not a uh, religious uh, man. But by contrast, uh, Joseph Butler uh, was a bishop in the Church of England. So he clearly was a religious man, uh, and his uh, protege, uh, Josiah Tucker, uh, was a religious man, and they thought about these matters. Uh, turning to uh, France, uh, I would say the most important uh, influence was Pierre Nicole. Uh, Nicole was a French clergyman, uh, but uh, e almost equally important was Francois Canet, uh, who was a great friend of Smith. Uh, Smith met him when he lived in Paris, and Smith said that if Canet had been alive, uh, Smith would have dedicated the wealth of nations to Canet. Uh, Canet died two, two years earlier, so alas, Smith couldn't do that. But Smith was a great friend of Canet. Canet, to my knowledge, was not a religious man. So the answer is yes in some cases, no in others. But the key engines of thought, I think, were Smith and Hume and their contemporaries in the Scottish Enlightenment. And what we pretty well know is that they were not religious figures. After all, these, these men became international celebrities in their own lifetimes. And as a result, we know a lot about them biographically. And it's very easy to say, no, they were not religiously inclined individuals. Mm -hmm. When I asked you about the emergence of capitalism, you mentioned, for example, Northern Italy and the Netherlands. So capitalism preceded these, uh, these thinkers, right? These economic thinkers. Yes, I believe that's right. Uh, as I emphasize in the book, the central element of Smith's contribution was to recognize the all-important role of market competition, and market competition was growing. I mean, Smith lived in uh, what was becoming an increasingly <clears throat> commercial society, <clears throat> and he saw this up close. He lived in Glasgow. He lived in uh, Edinburgh. He lived in London. All of these were commercial uh, places, and increasingly so. But no one would argue that market competition began in the 18th century. It goes way back. People were uh, competing in various ways. I've mentioned uh, 
uh, in particular uh, the Netherlands in the 17th century, but uh, on back before that, uh, in the Middle Ages, Europe had uh, fairs of various kinds. And even again, you, know, you go back to, we, to some of the thinkers we were talking about before. Uh, think about uh, Aquinas' views on the just price and all of that. Uh, if there hadn't been some elements of markets and competition in Aquinas' day, uh, he never would have, uh, I think it never would have occurred to him to write what he wrote. So market competition goes back a long way. Mm -hmm. And uh, what were some of the aspects in which how people think about capitalism that changed after Adam Smith and David Hume? Uh, I think the central contribution that Smith made is embodied in what today we still in economics call the first fundamental welfare theorem. And it's the idea that people acting on no more than their own self-interest can, and under the right circumstances, will make other people, in addition to themselves, better off by their actions. And furthermore, the right circumstances are competitive markets and the driving mechanism that brings this result about is precisely market competition. I think that's the essence of the Smithian uh, contribution. Some of these precursors of Smith, whom I mentioned a few minutes ago, people like Pierre Nicole in France or Bernard Mandeville in England, uh, had the intuition that um, people acting in their own self-interest could make others better off also. I mean, you know, at some level, you just look around to commercial society, uh, you see this happening. But they didn't really understand why it was. They didn't understand the mechanism. And I think Smith's great contribution is to establish that the condition for that result to emerge is markets and the mechanism by which it, uh, it occurs is competition. And that's really what the Wealth of Nations is all about. There's all this detailed uh, description of how markets work and how competition works and how competitively set wages and prices steer the allocation of economic activity to a place that makes other people better off. And incidentally, to cite another influence on Smith's thinking that I emphasize in the book, He's very much a Newtonian. And when you read the description in the Wealth of Nations about how all this works, it's just striking to see how Newtonian the language is. If you didn't pay much attention, he could be describing uh, what makes the planets circle around the sun. Well, he's not. He's describing how wages and prices get the economy to the right place. But the whole idea of system and mechanism is one that he got from Newton because he lived in a generation in which all of these uh, English and Scottish intellectuals were educated in Newtonian precepts. Mm -hmm. Are there aspects of Protestant thinking that translate directly into capitalist economic thinking or how capitalism works? 
Well, the, uh, the great book on the influence of Protestant thinking on capitalism as a form of economic uh, <clears throat> organization and as a uh, motivator of individual behavior is Max Weber's book from about a century and a quarter ago called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And uh, the relationship between my book and Weber's is an interesting one. Uh, Weber emphasized the role of people's belief in predestination, the idea that whether any individual was or was not to be saved in the afterlife uh, was a matter, according to Calvin, that's determined before any individual was even born. And indeed, according to Calvin, not only before the individual was born, but before uh, the world was even created. And so, of course, it followed that there's nothing that any individual can do, again, this is according to Calvin, uh, to influence whether he or she is among the saved. And Weber's idea was that uh, this belief subjected individuals to what he called existential anxiety over whether they were or were not among the saved. And therefore, people were in search of not causal behavior, but external signs that they were among the saved. Uh, people believed that if they worked diligently at their calling, if they were thrifty, they didn't live lavishly, they saved their money, they started new businesses, uh, Weber's notion was that all of these signs of hard work and diligence and industriousness would be, again, not causal because they couldn't be causal, but they would be external signs that people were among the elect. Now, the interesting relationship between Weber's idea and mine is that the key motivating force to which I point in trying to understand what gave Smith his thinking uh, was the movement away from predestinarian Calvinism. So in many ways, my book is uh, Weber upside down. And now how could the two both be right? And I think there are two uh, parts of that answer. One is that Weber is looking at a different time period than we are. And exactly as your question before led us to discuss how there was capitalism long before there was Adam Smith, Weber is looking primarily at the 17th century. He's thinking about all of these Dutch Calvinists and English Puritans walking around in the 17th century, subject to this um, existential anxiety, as he called it, and therefore uh, thinking they'd better work diligently at their calling. I'm looking a century later. I'm looking at the 18th century when Smith and Hume lived. And it is true, as I explain in my book, that the high tide in the English-speaking world of belief in predestinarian Calvinism was the 17th century. In fact, I date it to a specific date. I mentioned the Westminster Confession before. I date it to 1647 which was when the Westminster Confession was uh, promulgated, uh, and it was downhill from there. 
by the time we get to the 18th century, people no longer believed in that, and uh, they were moving away from it. And I think it was the more expansive, uh, more optimistic view of the possibilities for human action, human choice, human agency, that enabled Smith to come to his insights. But that's a matter of being a century later than Weber. So the religious thinking was different in the two centuries. And then another uh, difference between my book and Weber's is that he, uh, Weber, I'm an economist. Weber was a sociologist. Weber was interested in explaining the behavior of ordinary people. I'm interested in explaining here the thinking uh, of uh, individuals and moreover, the individuals whose names we would recognize as being economists. So these are the intellectual elite, but that's who gave us economics and that's why I'm interested in their thinking. So my book is in effect the reverse of Weber, but I think they're both right. Mm -hmm. But Hume and Smith were enlightenment thinkers. So would you say that then religion could have also influenced the development of the enlightenment or is that something you don't touch on in the book? I'm going to duck that question, if you don't mind. I think you have to be more of an Enlightenment scholar, uh, more of a more of a uh, of a historian of philosophy than I am. Uh, I to have an informed view of the subject. Uh, the standard view uh, is that the Enlightenment was a movement away from religious thinking, uh, that it was a movement away from conceptions of a God-centered universe toward what we in our modern vocabulary call secular humanism. Uh, and I know that. Uh, but I'm also aware that there are some historians of philosophy who do argue that there were religious influences on the uh, Enlightenment, and I, I don't feel competent to wade into that, uh, that particular dispute. So uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to duck that question. Yeah, of course, no problem. It, it's, a very, it's a very interesting one, uh, but uh, you'd have to get one of, my, uh, one of my colleagues from the philosophy department to uh, address that. Mm -hmm. So uh, can we say that there are any other economists after uh, Hume and Smith that were also influenced by religion? Uh, yes, indeed. And uh, in, the, in the latter half of my book, uh, after uh, Smith's death in 1790, uh, my book uh, moves to the United States, where I trace the evolution of economic thinking from uh, that time to ours. And uh, right through the 19th and the 20th centuries, there were economists whose views were influenced by religious thinking. And just to cite a few examples, in the uh, first half of the 19th century, uh, it turns out that the central figures in the development of American economics were almost all uh, either clergymen or uh, very closely aligned with um, one or another Protestant denomination. 
the author of the best-selling economics textbook in the United States before our Civil War was Francis Wayland. Uh, Francis Wayland was a Baptist uh, clergyman and was the president of Brown University, very much a Baptist, in the same way that my university was a Puritan uh, foundation, Brown was a Baptist uh, foundation. The author of the second best-selling textbook, a competing book, was Francis Bowen. Uh, Bowen was not an ordained clergyman, but uh, Bowen was very close to the Unitarian establishment. Uh, he was at Harvard, and Harvard by this time had moved from being Puritan to being uh, Unitarian. Uh, the uh, instructor of the first college university course that we know of in economics in America uh, was a man named John McVicker, and McVicker was an Episcopal priest taught at Columbia, which was an Episcopal foundation. So it was certainly true in the first half of the 19th century, moving to the second half of the century. Uh, all of these figures who were instrumental in the 1880s in <clears throat> creating, in establishing the American Economics Association, <clears throat> people like John Bates Clark, like Richard T. Ely, <clears throat> and others were uh, not ordained clergymen, but were very close to what, as I explained in the book, were uh, was called the social gospel movement in the American Protestant uh, churches. So I think right through that period, there were many leading economists who were <clears throat> uh, very much influenced by religious thinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I mean, those are economists from the 19th century, <clears throat> the ones you mentioned. Yes, that's right. Uh, Bowen and McVicker and Wayland <clears throat> were all active in the period in the first half of the century. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> um, Wayland and uh, John Bates Clark in the latter half of the century. Mm -hmm. And what about in the 20th century? Were there any economic thinkers that, I mean, that, that you also include in the way they were influenced by religion? I think the answer here starts to become no. <clears throat> As I explain in the, in the book, a standard view of the development of any scientific discipline is that it's in the early days of the discipline when it's most influenced or most subject to influence by external uh, factors uh, like religion, for example, in its fundamental concepts. And as disciplines uh, evolve and mature, <clears throat> increasingly they develop a momentum of their own and their basic uh, fundamental theoretical concepts become isolated from outside influence, and instead the outside influence is a matter of methodology and application, and in the case of economics, uh, policy. And so the part of my book that deals with the 20th century focuses on this transition uh, to the point where we are today, where I don't think you can look at the work of most professional economists and 
identify any specific religious uh, influences. By contrast, especially here in America, our public discussion of economics and our debate over economic policy is very much one that has uh, religious influences, and I discuss a lot of those uh, in the book. So it's an interesting transition. Uh, the historian of science who has, I think, been most clear in articulating this view of how the subjectivity to uh, external influences changes as a, a scientific discipline matures is Thomas Kuhn. Kuhn is most famous for his work on what he called the, the paradigm shifts, uh, but uh, this is a different part of, of his work. But uh, Kuhn uh, outlined this uh, uh, this maturation process uh, very clearly, and I think that's what we've seen in economics. As After all, if you go back to uh, Adam Smith and David Hume, this was the very beginnings of modern Western economics, uh, but uh, you know, here we are uh, nearly two and a half centuries later, and the the discipline is by now, I wouldn't say it's fully matured, but it's it's quite mature compared to what it was then. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the 20th century, what were some of the main economic thinkers there? Well, I think the major force in the 20th century, <clears throat> uh, especially here I'm referring especially to the United States, was a coming together of religious conservatism and economic conservatism in a way that's still with us, even though the original catalyst for that uh, coming together uh, has uh, waned. Uh, the catalyst to which I point uh, was the existential threat uh, from world communism. Um, what I think happened is that around the middle of the 20th century, in the decades following the Second World War. Economic conservatives and religious conservatives came to understand that they were combating the same enemy. The religious conservatives understood correctly that communism was the antithesis of Western religion. The economic conservatives, conservatives came to understand also correctly that communism was the antithesis of market capitalism. And as a result, uh, especially in the United States, to a limited extent elsewhere, we had this blending, merging of economic conservatism and religious conservatism. And now, uh, and, and I used the word catalyst a moment ago in describing this process quite deliberately uh, because uh, in the same way that a catalyst in chemistry is something that triggers a reaction and then after the catalyst is gone, the results of the reaction are still there, uh, we all know that the threat of world communism is of course gone there are still a few odd communist countries, but the notion that communism is going to take over the world is just perhaps by military force uh, is long gone. Uh, but nonetheless, especially here in the United States, we have this very important to us um, 
unity between economic conservative thinking and uh, religious conservatives, especially embodied in what we call the evangelical Protestant movement. And I point to evidence from voting behavior, evidence from uh, survey uh, behavior, questionnaires, to show that uh, the evangelical community in the United States thinks very differently about economic questions than do the other uh, Americans, including other Protestants. Maybe we have uh, evangelical Protestants and we have what we call main Protestants. And the mainline Protestants uh, do not differ very much from uh, other Americans, but the evangelical Protestants absolutely do. And evangelical Protestants are a very large and potent and growing uh, force in American politics, and they have dis quite distinct views on economic uh, policy uh, issues, and those views are very much aligned with the uh, economic conservatives uh, with which uh, they came together in the middle of the 20th century, I think as a result of the communist threat. Mm -hmm. And these evangelical Protestants, when exactly did they start to have a significant impact on politics? I would say it's primarily in the years following the Second World War. Uh, as I trace out the history in the book, these evangelical Protestants uh, were certainly a presence in America right through the 19th century. But I don't, in answer to your question, I don't think it would be uh, possible to identify much of an influence that they would have had on uh, economic policy. And then there was an attempt uh, by evangelicals to have an uh, influence on policy in the pre-World War II period, uh, but it didn't go anywhere. And indeed, uh, for a variety of ways that I'm happy to talk about, if you like, although it would be, take us in a different direction, uh, the evangelicals in the pre-World War II period uh, suffered some very serious reverses in their attempts to uh, influence uh, the country. I would say that the, 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 the single example where evangelicals were very important in uh, public policy in the United States uh, in the pre-World War II period was our constitutional amendment for what we called prohibition, uh, banning alcoholic beverages. Uh, and that was one of the reverses that they faced, incidentally. It was a, it was a dramatic failure and the Constitution. The 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution bans alcoholic beverages, and the 21st Amendment to the Constitution abolishes the 18th Amendment. So uh, it, it, it was a big disaster, and they had other disasters as well. So I think it's not until the post-World War II period, and probably not until the advent of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, that the evangelical community really came into its own as a force in uh, influencing economic policy. And that was 40 years ago, but this force is still very much with us. Mm -hmm. And immediately after World War II, 
weren't there major changes in economic thinking? I mean, uh, after the war, wasn't it the case that uh, Keynesian economics was the dominant school of thought? Yes, exactly so. But that would not have been a school of thinking that the evangelicals would have endorsed. So uh, exactly as you say, the dominance of uh, Keynesian economic thought and economic policy in the early post-World War II decades is, if anything, evidence that the evangelicals had not yet come into their own uh, as, a, uh, as a powerful influence over public economic, uh, uh, public economic uh, policy. Now, uh, let me also be clear that uh, what the, in a way that we were talking about a few minutes ago, uh, what the evangelicals care about, like most American citizens, uh, is not economic theory, but economic policy. I, I don't think uh, the typical citizen, and here, here I don't think Americans are different from people in any other uh, country. Uh, you know, we economists think that our own thinking is, of course, fascinating, and we are, you know, we spend a lot of time on that. I don't think the typical citizen cares a bit what economists think. What they care about is the society in which they live and the way the policies their government pursues influences that policy and influence that uh, society and influences their lives. <clears throat> so the influence that the evangelicals uh, are uh, pursuing and have pursued is not at the level of <clears throat> pursuing economic thinking <clears throat> by economists. It's about <clears throat> pursuing uh, influencing economic policy. And what happened after the rise of neoliberalism? I see. <clears throat> There's a word that's used uh, in neoliberalism is a word that's used in different ways in different uh, contexts. Well, uh, in the context in which we are speaking now, I would say that there were important elements of the uh, neoliberal uh, movement that were very much consistent with uh, evangelical uh, views. The evangelicals, for reasons that have quite deep theological roots, which I flesh out in the book, uh, evangelicals are not very uh, supportive of social reform movements and policies that do not have directly moral implications. So, for example, the uh, evangelicals were in favor of banning alcoholic beverages. Back in the 19th century, the evangelicals were very much in favor of uh, abolishing slavery in the United States. And that's because they placed moral interpretations on both of these. By contrast, uh, the idea that we need to abolish poverty, that's not very high on the evangelical uh, agenda, and therefore they tend not <clears throat> to support policies that are uh, what we would think of as part of the modern welfare state. Uh, and indeed, one of the great puzzles that we have in America today, and uh, that I take up in the latter part of my 
uh, book is why it is that so many of these evangelicals tend to vote in ways that run counter to their personal economic interest. Uh, to a greater extent than other Americans, evangelicals draw on what we call food stamps, that is uh, um, the ability to get free food. Uh, they draw on supplemental income assistance. They live in public housing, not all to be sure, but disproportionately, more so than other Americans. And yet evangelicals tend to vote for candidates and for the Republican Party, <clears throat> which is opposed to those uh, programs. They often vote for candidates that would like to eliminate uh, food stamps, that would like to cut back on supplemental assistance, like to get rid of public housing. Well, this is a great puzzle, and it's not escaped notice in our uh, political science uh, colleagues. Um, I think the explanation for that kind of behavior on the part of our political science colleagues is seriously incomplete because while they have uh, explanations, those explanations don't, uh, don't give rise to, or they can't explain the fact that when asked about do you favor welfare state policies, the evangelicals say, no, we don't. And I think this runs counter to the standard political science explanation, but I think these religious origins of their views of economic policy matters that I trace out in the book uh, does help explain it. Mm -hmm. And the evangelicals also supported Trump, correct? Yes, evangelicals are very much in favor of Trump. Evangelicals generally tend to uh, support the Republican Party. And you see, that part is consistent. Uh, they voted for Trump, they voted for uh, George Bush, they voted for Reagan. And this part is consistent with the explanation that our political science colleagues uh, offer because these Republican candidates tend to be against abortion, which the evangelicals do in, uh, uh, see in moral terms. They're against same-sex marriage and so forth. Um, and so it's not that hard to say why they would vote for Republican candidates. What I think the standard political science explanation can't explain is why when you ask them in polls, in public opinion surveys, on a standalone basis, do you favor these welfare state policies or not? Would you like to have government regulation of business that's businesses that are polluting the rivers from which you get water or not? Uh, would you like a smaller government or a bigger government? In all of these uh, areas, uh, evangelicals have uh, very uh, different economic ideas, meaning ideas about economic policy than other Americans. Mm -hmm. And would you have any explanation for that? And do I? Yes, I do. I think it goes back to uh, this combination of uh, non-predestinarian thinking. 
together with a view on a subject that we haven't talked about yet, and that's how to interpret the millennialist prophecies in the Bible. It wasn't always true, but especially in the last hundred years, almost all American evangelicals have been what we call pre-millennialist, and this is a particular interpretation of the millennial uh, prophecies in the Bible, uh, which have the important implication that uh, secular progress in the world in which we live is not possible, that it's not going to take place uh, until the second coming. And once that's happened, then individuals such as ourselves will no longer be here. And I think that it's for this reason, and it's not, I'm not the only person who thinks this, it's for this reason that evangelicals, while being in favor of progress on the moral front, like abolishing slavery, like abolishing alcoholic drinks, because they think that will hasten, will bring forward in time the second coming, they're not very in favor of secular progress. Uh, secular progress will wait until uh, the world as we know it has been replaced by a different world. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so uh, what about the relationship between capitalism and political ideology? Because I think that if we look back in history, for example, in the 18th and 19th century, we had economic thinkers and political philosophers both on the right and the left that were either critical or for capitalism. And nowadays, uh, I mean, if you look at, if we look at the left-right wing divide, uh, capitalism tends to be more associated with conservative, with conservative thinking. So how do we make sense of that? Uh, I think the phenomenon that you are describing is much more a European phenomenon than America, than in America. We really don't have people in America who are um, <clears throat> eager to replace capitalism with uh, something uh, else. I mean, we're very aware of the shortcomings uh, of uh, capitalism and our way of addressing it. And like Europe, we, too, do not live in a pure, unfettered capitalist uh, system. Uh, we have much less of a welfare state than in Europe, but we have one. It's certainly not the case that we have no welfare support. It's not the case that we have no uh, regulation of uh, business. Uh, but we see these matters differently than Europeans. And I think the difference goes right to the heart of the question that you asked. Uh, there's, except for fringe groups, there's basically nobody on the left uh, in America who would like to replace capitalism with something else. So it's not something that we have in our country. Mm -hmm. When it comes to alternatives to capitalism like communism, do you know if it was also influenced by religion in any way? Well, <clears throat> as I mentioned before, and here Marx was quite uh, explicit, uh, communism, Marxist-Leninist-style communism, <clears throat> is, of course, 
the absolute opponent of Western-style religion, and so it's no surprise that in every country in which the communists uh, gained power, one of the items that was high on their agenda was to suppress uh, religion, and it's not surprising, therefore, that in these countries, just think they're right there in Europe, countries like Poland that had to live under communism or like Hungary, uh, in all of these countries, the uh, church uh, was then and remains, um, you know, sharply uh, anti-communist. But the same thing is true here, as I was explaining. People here in the United States didn't take communism very seriously <clears throat> until after the Second World War. But in 1949, the uh, Soviet Union uh, announced that it now had atomic weapons. And so people started to take the threat very seriously. Uh, Americans of my generation, I'm old enough that I remember when we used to have air raid drills. And looking back, they were rather silly, but I can tell you that when I was a child in school, we used to have regular drills uh, in which we were made to shelter underneath our desks in case there was a nuclear attack. Uh, now, again, if you think back on it, it's rather silly because uh, suppose there had been a nuclear attack, what would hiding under a wooden desk have done for anybody? <laughs> the whole idea today is silly, but I mention it simply to indicate how seriously <clears throat> we took the threat. And again, it followed because uh, in 1949, the Soviets uh, acquired uh, uh, not-yet-nuclear uh, Nuclear followed, but acquired atomic weapons. So uh, people took this very seriously, and American clergymen like Billy Graham used to preach about the communist threat all the time. And I think people, uh, people did take that very seriously. So yes, uh, we were focused on communism, uh, and that uh, lasted for uh, quite, quite some decades. I remember the Soviet Union didn't collapse until 1991. So if you go from 1949 to 1991, that's more than uh, more than four decades in which people were taking this seriously. Mm -hmm. So I have one or two more questions, general ones to ask you. The first one, isn't capitalism a competitive system? I'm asking you that because since in the book where you were trying to establish a relationship between religion and the rise of capitalism, uh, if we look into the, particularly the anthropological literature on religion, it seems to be uh, a social institution that promotes cooperation and pro-social behavior. So wouldn't there be any sort of contradiction there? <clears throat> In Roman Catholicism, the answer would certainly be yes. And this is why throughout the <clears throat> uh, centuries, uh, uh, Roman Catholic thinkers have always taken a very negative view for to many of them to uh, uh, the economics of communism. As I mentioned before, if you go to uh, Poland or other countries that had to live under communism, Roman Catholic thinkers are, of course, 
sharply opposed to communism. But even there, uh, the view toward uh, the competitive aspects of communism are much uh, much less. Uh, the church, uh, going back into the early days, was uh, never uh, had a very positive view of economic activity. Uh, Augustine, for example, uh, had the view. You know, Augustine. We're now back at the uh, end of the fourth. Uh, uh, century beginning of the fifth century, Augustine had the view that uh, the uh, lust for money was on a par with sexual lust and the lust for power over other human beings. These three were to be treated uh, as uh, the same and uh, or in parallel and coming right down through the Middle Ages. Roman Catholic thinking was never. Uh, sympathetic to uh, market competition, uh, all of the scholastic Thomists focus on the just price. Uh, in contra think, think of that as the contrast to Smith and getting the price to the place that will steer the economy to the right place. It was all on uh, justice in uh, economic interpersonal dealings. So I think in Roman Catholic countries, it's very different. Now, Protestant uh, uh, Protestant countries have had a very different view, and that's why I think in the modern era, uh, the Netherlands and uh, England uh, have had, and the north of Germany have had a very different experience, and of course the United States. So Protestant thinking is much more uh, compatible with the idea of individualism, of people competing, and as I said before, uh, in some strands of Protestant thinking, the idea, and this is Weber's idea, the, the notion that uh, you compete economically and you're successful in the competition is not only not frowned, frowned on econo uh, in religious terms, that's the sign that you're among the religiously elect. So I think it's very different in Protestant versus Roman Catholic countries. Mm -hmm. So one final question, and of course we don't have a time machine to go back in time, but do you think that without Protestant, uh, uh, without Protestant religion or Protestant Catholicism, um, Catholicism not, uh, Protestant Christianity, we would have capitalism? And are you asking whether we would have capitalism in the sense of an existing form of economic behavior and organization, or are you asking whether we would have uh, modern Western economic thinking? W which one are you asking about? Uh, the second one. Modern Western economic thinking. Yes. Is, uh, uh, in that case, the answer is I think yes, we would. Uh, I think the insights that Smith uh, uh, gave us uh, are powerful enough that sooner or later somebody would have figured that out. Uh, I don't want to argue that um, the movement away from predestinarian Calvinism was a necessary condition. I think it was a strongly contributing factor, but I don't uh, in the book uh, in any way pretend 
that is the only contributing factor. I point in, we've already talked about things like the fact that they, these people lived in an increasingly uh, commercial society at the intellectual level. I've talked about the influence of Newtonian ideas of system and mechanism. I chose to write my book about the influence of the change in religious thinking simply because the others are well known, things like the role of Newtonianism and the role of living, the importance of living in an increasingly commercial society. Those are all well known. What's not uh, well understood is the role of this, uh, uh, the change in religious thinking. So that's what I chose to write the book about. But I don't want, and, and, I, and while I do believe it was a very important contributing factor, I don't want to claim that it was a necessary condition in a strict sense, because that would mean that the Smithian ideas about competition and markets uh, could not come into existence Nobody could have those insights without, uh, in that case, without uh, the change in religious thinking. And I don't think that's true. Sooner or later, somebody would have had those ideas. But as a matter of the way history did play itself out, the person who gave us that was Smith. And the people who supported this effort were Smith's contemporaries. <clears throat> and so... The question I was asking in the book was not, could these ideas sooner or later have appeared, but why did they, they actually did appear. They did appear in the 18th century. They did appear in the UK and in particular in Scotland. And there were particular identifiable individuals who had those ideas. And that's the origin that I am trying to explain, did try to explain in the book. And for that purpose, I do want to point to the change in religious thinking as a very important contributing factor. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, so uh, the book is again Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. Just before we go, are there any places on the internet you would like to mention where people can find your work? Well, in terms of finding the book, uh, there is a, uh, well, first place, any, anything li like anything in the world from uh, light bulbs to uh, cosmetics to sinks to whatever building materials. Of course, people can get the book on Amazon, but also Penguin Random House uh, has uh, a website. And I'm sure they would be pleased if uh, people ordered the book from them. The publisher is Knopf. K-N-O-P-F, which is a very uh, distinguished, I'm proud to say, American publisher, and they've been my publisher for years, and I'm proud of that. So anybody who enters the uh, into the internet, uh, religion and the rise of capitalism, Knopf, or you can enter Penguin Random House, because uh, with the consolidation in the publishing industry, which is a whole other conversation all in itself. Uh, some years ago, uh, Knopf was uh, bought by Random House. So I also think of my publisher as Random House. But of course, uh, Random House merged with Penguin. 
And as I understand it, the whole thing is owned by Bertelsmann, which is in Germany. So it's all part of the same thing. So if public people go to the web and enter religion in the rise of capitalism, uh, Penguin or Penguin Random House or Random House, any of those will get them to the right place. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Friedman, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing the channel for more than three years now. And it is thanks to people like you that it's been running for so long. And so if you like what I'm doing, please pay a visit to my Patreon page or to PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. And to consider making a pledge there, support the show. And otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share, share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Eines, Sam, uh, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Alan or uh, Al Orwitz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linares, Lida Cosmidi, Simon Afzal, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Adriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardos France, and Niroban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.